When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Brink of War. Ukraine's president sounding the alarm about tensions between his country and Russia as the Biden administration predicts a Russian incursion within days. I'm convinced he's made the decision. I'll speak to Secretary of State Antony Blinken and someone with insight into President Putin's thinking. Finnish President Sauli Ninista next. And keep calm and carry on. Queen Elizabeth tests positive for COVID-19, as nearly every governor in the U.S. is loosening restrictions. What does the new normal look like? A Democratic governor who was ahead of the pack. Colorado's Jared Polis joins me to discuss in moments. Plus, mind on the midterms. Democrats and Republicans brace for the upcoming elections as the party in power searches for a strategy to keep it. They'll ban books, but do nothing about guns. The other divides itself further. How will all this play with voters? My panel is here to discuss ahead. Hello, I'm Dana Bash in Washington, where the State of Our Union is worried about war in Europe. Tension over Russia's aggression towards Ukraine has the world on edge. This morning, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson warned that Russia is planning for what could be a, quote, the biggest war in Europe since 1945. Later today, President Biden will convene his National Security Council in the White House Situation Room as Vice President Kamala Harris returns from a conference of world leaders in Munich, where she reiterated President Biden's assertion that Russian President President Vladimir Putin has made a decision to invade Ukraine. This weekend, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky left Ukraine briefly to meet allies in Germany, including U.S. Vice President Harris and told CNN's Christian Amanpour that the West is not doing enough right now to deter Putin. He called for a list of possible sanctions on Moscow to be made public immediately. Ukrainian officials say their soldiers are ready for any scenario as violence and shelling is already escalating in eastern Ukraine. The U.S. now estimates 160 to 190,000 Russian personnel are in and around Ukraine. That's nearly double the number there three weeks ago. And it's all happening on a grim anniversary for Ukraine. According to the U.S., it was exactly eight years ago today that Russian troops first crossed into Ukraine to eventually annex Crimea. I want to go straight to Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine, where CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, joins us live. And Clarissa, President Biden says Putin has made a decision to invade. What are you seeing and feeling on the ground there? 
Well, Donna, here in Kiev, remarkably, the streets are quiet but largely calm. However, that can't be said about the eastern part of the country, where a war has been underway for eight years now. But those front lines had largely been frozen for some time, up until the last few days. Yesterday was the highest amount of activity that we have seen on those front lines in years. Two Ukrainian soldiers were killed. A CNN team, who were actually touring the front lines with Ukraine's interior minister, came under heavy fire. They were pinned down for some time, and then they were forced uh, to flee the area. Just days before, we had also visited the site of a kindergarten that had come under apparent shelling. So a real uptick in activity along those front lines, and a lot of people concerned uh, that things could unravel even more quickly. For the most part, though, Ukraine's leadership has been stressing this idea that diplomacy is still an option. It's still the way forward. They say that they don't dispute the U.S. intelligence but that perhaps they have a different way of interpreting it. And one thing, Dana, that people had really been looking to uh, as a potential sign of meaningful de-escalation from Russia was the end of these joint exercises between Russia and Belarusia in Belarus. If we had seen uh, the, those Russian soldiers leaving Belarus after those exercises, there would have been a sense, I think, that people felt more confident that de-escalation and diplomacy might be possible. However, we have just heard today from Belarus's defense minister that Russian troops will stay there in position to continue readiness checks. And they cited the situation uh, in Ukraine and also particularly in Donbass. That's those separatists, those pro-Russian separatist areas in the east of the country. So many here viewing that as a slightly ominous sign, Dana. Clarissa Ward, thank you so much for that report. And joining me now is the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. Uh, Mr. Secretary, let's start with what you just heard Clarissa reporting on, uh, learning that troops from Russia and Belarus will continue those joint exercises there past their planned end date. What does that tell you? Does it make you more concerned about an invasion? Uh, it does, and it, uh, it tells us that the playbook that we laid out, I laid out at the U.N. Security Council last week about uh, Russia trying to create uh, a series of, of provocations as justifications for aggression against Ukraine uh, is, is going forward. We've seen that over the last few days. Now they're justifying the continuation of exercises in, exercises in quotation marks that they said would end now, the continuation indefinitely of those quote-unquote exercises on the situation in eastern Ukraine, a situation that they've created uh, by uh, continuing to ramp up tensions. Meanwhile, uh, they've been escalating uh, the forces they have across uh, Ukraine's borders uh, over the last months, from 50,000 forces to 100,000 to now more than 150,000. So all of this, along with the false flag operations we've seen unfold over the weekend, uh, tells us that the playbook that we laid out uh, is moving forward. So you mentioned the false flag uh, operation. You have that. You also have, as Clarissa talked about, a kindergarten hit by a shell, uh, and you have a cyber attack that's already happened. Ukraine is reporting dozens of ceasefire violations. Is Russia's plan to invade already in motion? It, uh, as we've described it, uh, everything leading up to the, the actual invasion appears to be taking place. Uh, all of these false flag operations, all of these provocations uh, to create justifications, all of that is already in train. But you heard President Biden say this the other night. Um, we believe President Putin has made the decision. But until uh, the tanks are actually rolling and the, and the, the planes are flying, uh, we will use every opportunity and every minute we have uh, to see if uh, diplomacy can still uh, dissuade 
uh, President Putin from carrying this forward. Uh, President Biden is uh, prepared to engage uh, President Putin at any time in any format if that can help prevent a war. Um, I reached out to my Russian counterpart, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov, uh, to urge that we meet uh, next week in Europe. The plan is still to, to do that unless Russia invades in the meantime. Ukrainian President Zelensky called for the U.S. to impose sanctions now. He did that in Munich yesterday. I want you to take a listen. What are you waiting for? We don't need your sanctions after the bombardment will happen and after our country will be fired at or after we will have no borders and after we will have no economy or parts of our countries will be occupied. Why would we need those sanctions then? And he called on you, at the very least, to make a, a list of specific sanctions public. What's your response? Well, we've been in very close contact with President Zelensky and all, his entire team. The vice president in Munich met with him. Uh, they had a very uh, good meeting in which the vice president reiterated all the support uh, that we've been building for Ukraine over many months, including in the last year alone, uh, more support uh, for defensive uh, lethal military equipment uh, in, in that one year than in any previous year. Economic support. I uh, announced a loan guarantee for Ukraine of a billion dollars just uh, just a week ago. And we have rallied others uh, to do the same thing. When it comes to sanctions, uh, we have built uh, with uh, European partners and allies a massive package of, uh, of, of sanctions. The G7 countries in Munich came together, reiterated that there would be massive consequences for Russia if it pursues this aggression. The purpose of the sanctions in the first instance is to try to deter Russia from going to war. As soon as you trigger them, that deterrent is gone. And until um, uh, the last minute, uh, as long as we can try to bring uh, a deterrent effect to this, uh, we're going to try to do that. As to laying out in detail what the sanctions will be, two things. First, Russia generally has a pretty good idea uh, of what we're going to do, but we don't want to lay out the specifics in advance because that would allow Russia to uh, try to plan against them. So we have very clearly, and the, the G7 could not have been more clear, uh, a massive package that will unfold uh, rapidly in unison uh, between the United States and Europe and other countries beyond Europe. Mr. Secretary, it seems as though uh, we're hearing two competing notions. On the one hand, you're saying, and the president, President Biden said clearly, Russia has decided to invade. And then on the other hand, you're saying we don't want to impose sanctions because uh, that would get rid of a deterrent. So which one is it? And, and especially given the fact that you have the Ukrainian leader with hundreds of thousands of troops on his border, being told that, that they're gonna, Russia is going to invade at any minute, leaving his country, going to a, a forum on the world stage in order to have that kind of platform to plead with you, please impose sanctions now. How is the answer not yes? Well, first, we've already imposed sanctions. Uh, we've, we've sanctioned uh, various uh, More actors. sanctions. Uh, first, we've, we've, as I said, Dana, we've imposed sanctions already on actors in uh, Ukraine who are working for uh, Russian security forces and trying to uh, destabilize the country. And um, again, uh, and I look, I understand where President Zelensky is coming from, but these things are not at all inconsistent because, as President Biden said, uh, while we believe President Putin has made the decision that the, the die is cast, until that die actually settles and until the, the tanks are actually moving, the planes are actually flying, the bombs are actually dropping. We're going to do everything we can with diplomacy and with uh, deterrence and dissuasion uh, to get uh, President Putin to reverse the decision uh, that, we, that we believe he's made. And part of that is um, making very clear uh, what he risks in terms of, uh, of sanctions. That's why we reiterated it so strongly this weekend with the world's leading democratic economies, mm -hmm. the G7. We're going to use every tool that we can uh, to try to get him off the course uh, that he's on. If that doesn't succeed, 
if he goes forward nonetheless with the, the, uh, the invasion, then uh, the world is very clear that it's going to come down on him and Russia very, very hard. What are the chances that Vladimir Putin is bluffing? There's, al- there's, there's always a chance. But every indication that we've seen, every move that he's made that has followed the, uh, the play that we laid out for the world to see uh, in front of the United Nations Security Council, he is following the script almost to the letter. So uh, I think uh, while there's always a chance, um, everything we're seeing uh, suggests that this is dead serious, that we are on the brink of an invasion. We will do everything we can to try to prevent it before it happens. But equally, uh, we're prepared if, uh, if he does follow through uh, to impose massive consequences, to defend, uh, to, pr- to provide for uh, Ukraine's uh, ongoing defense, and uh, to bolster NATO. And here again, what is remarkable about this is President Putin will have precip- precipitated everything he has sought to prevent, because all of this has only reinforced NATO, reinforced its solidarity, its commitment, uh, and indeed reinforced NATO uh, on its eastern flank. I was just in Munich with uh, all of the leaders of uh, our European partners, and I think all of us uh, who've been doing this for many years have never seen a time uh, when NATO has been more unified uh, and uh, is, um, uh, I think, going to uh, further demonstrate yeah. that if uh, if uh, Putin follows through with the invasion. President Zelensky also said yesterday that Ukraine's economy is just getting crushed. Mm. The head of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, says that the U.S. should also be ready for this standoff to stretch out for months, perhaps, while Ukraine's economy collapses. What do you make of that scenario? And would Putin face consequences for that? First, it's, that's, a, that's a possibility as well. And it's exactly why uh, we announced a billion-dollar loan guarantee just, uh, just last week. Uh, that's on top of previous loan guarantees we provided to, uh, to Ukraine for a total of $4 billion to shore up its economy. At the same time, uh, the Europeans are doing the same thing, both on a, a direct country-to-country basis, but also the European Union. Uh, making uh, available to Ukraine also a couple of weeks ago uh, a credit facility of more than a billion dollars. We're also um, helping Ukraine work directly and closely with the IMF to shore mm-hmm. up its economy, to pursue reforms, uh, to make sure that uh, it's able to stand on its feet uh, But would Putin face consequences if that is ultimately what he does? He just chokes the economy there? Uh, we are very focused with all of our allies and partners mm-hmm. on ensuring that uh, Russia does face consequences for the actions that it takes to include uh, actions that would involve uh, squeezing Ukraine going forward. Before I let you go, you mentioned that you did accept a meeting with mm. the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. That's going to happen this coming week. Given that President Biden says President Putin has decided to invade, is is the meeting for sure going to happen, number one? And do you have kind of a Hail Mary offer for Russia to avoid war? Well, I reached out to Foreign Minister Lavrov about a week ago, suggesting we meet in Europe next week. And he came back and said yes. Mm. I went back and said, OK, the meeting's on, provided uh, Russia doesn't invade Ukraine in the interim. So uh, it all depends on what Russia does in the coming days. If it doesn't invade, I'll be there. Uh, I hope he'll be there, too. And uh, I will do everything I can to see if we can advance a diplomatic resolution to this crisis created by Russia and its aggression against, uh, against Ukraine. We've put on the table a number of ideas uh, that we can pursue that would uh, strengthen security for Russia, for the United States, uh, for Europe, uh, if we engage in them on a reciprocal basis. So uh, there are things that we, we're, we're prepared to do if Russia is also prepared to take steps. That's the conversation I welcome having with Foreign Minister Lavrov, but it depends entirely on whether Russia invades or not. 
Very busy day and, uh, and week ahead. Thank you so much, Mr. Secretary, for joining me this morning. Thanks, Dana. Good to be with you. Thank you. And can anyone truly know what Vladimir Putin is thinking? I'll ask a leader in the region who speaks directly to Putin and knows him pretty well. Next. And also breaking news. Queen Elizabeth tests positive for COVID-19. What we know ahead. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Dana Bash. Perhaps no current Western leader knows more about how Vladimir Putin works than Finland's president, Sauli Ninista. And that's why it raised red flags this week when Ninista told The New York Times that he has seen a clear change in Putin's state of mind and decision-making process. Rather, For the past few years, Ninista has been an interpreter of sorts for Putin and the West, straddling both sides, not just geographically, Finland is Russia's neighbor, but diplomatically, passing messages from Putin himself to Western leaders. And Finnish President Sauli Ninista joins me now. Uh, so, uh, Mr. President, knowing President Putin as well as you do, what do you think his end game is here? What we have seen so far, and uh, I'm a bit afraid it will continue, we see Russia pushing forward, then taking a step backwards, then two steps forward. And uh, with all this, uh, like we have uh, noticed uh, we have, uh, well, been quite confused. And uh, that's maybe the tactics. At this point, do you believe that President Putin will invade? I think there still are three alternatives. First one is that somehow they could settle the issue of eastern Ukraine, Minsk agreement and all that. I think it's far away. Then second option is that uh, we will see a full-scale war. And the third one, which is as bad, is that we see this kind of, like I described, two steps forward, one back, that is increasing tensions all the time. And uh, the third one might, uh, at the moment... Uh, I, w I would uh, say that might be the nearest one, at least. Mr. President, for people here in the West who don't know Vladimir Putin, don't understand him as you do, please answer this. Is he an irrational leader with a large army, or is he a fundamentally rational leader with a strategy? This is a very difficult question to, to me, too. Even though I have met him several times during these uh, 10 years and uh, had several phone calls with him, uh, it is, like we all know, it's very difficult to say and uh, define what other person actually deep down is. But uh, uh, so far, I would say that uh, he has behaved in a way which is uh, very difficult to predict. But that might be also intentional, to, namely to behave in the, that way, because that brings confusion to, to surroundings. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said that uh, we are a bit confused at the moment. You have uh, said that you noticed a change in Vladimir Putin in the last year and said that he suddenly, quote, 
started to behave in a very, very decisive way. Can you be more specific about yes. what that change was? And do you think that's connected at all to the way that he's really isolated himself during the pandemic? No, actually, it happened that way that we had a telephone discussion like we have had several ones during these years. And um, when I uh, took up the list of demands he had uh, posed and told the Finnish position that uh, we surely uh, are going to keep our sovereignty and uh, right to decide ourselves, then he suddenly, uh, very officially, uh, I, and I think he read the whole list of demands. And that was a change in his behavior. And I would guess, uh, and from that, I guess that uh, he wants, at least wants to be very decisive, wants to sound like one. It was different kind of behavior. So... As you well know, but I want to make sure our audience understands that your country, Finland, shares a 830-mile-long border with Russia and, like Ukraine, is not a member of NATO. Does Russia's aggression make you at all concerned that your country could be next? First of all, we have to remember that Finland is a stable, long-lasting, more than 100 years, stable democracy. And uh, we are a member of European Union. We are surely part of the West. And uh, the long borderline, surely, you have to know geographics. And you can't do anything with that. So uh, we are not afraid, not at all. Actually, the situation in Finnish borderline and in a whole Baltic uh, sea area is now quite peaceful. We are not uh, afraid of uh, Russian tanks, uh, tanks suddenly crossing Finnish border. You say you're very much a part of the West. Does this crisis have you and your country rethinking whether you want to join NATO? There's a... A lot discussion about that just now, and uh, I think that we will continue that discussion, uh, and depending on, on what uh, really happens in Ukraine, it might uh, even get uh, uh, a lot uh, more lively. But at the moment, uh, at least, I don't see any reason for any uh, dramatic uh, sudden changes. It has to be thoroughly thought. But if things do heat up and become uh, more explosive, so to speak, in Ukraine, you think that your country will lean into the notion of wanting to be in NATO? Uh, at least some of our people are changing their mind. That's very obvious. Uh, a lot depends also what actually happens in Ukraine and how Russia is going to behave after that. Mm -hmm. uh, if uh, Russia sees that it's a big success story for them, that makes them uh, uh, more dangerous. 
And finally, uh, Mr. President, you said recently that, quote, the post-Cold War era is definitely over. So what era are we in now? I think that um, we are actually almost in a colder situation than uh, we were during that traditional Cold War, because then we had at least some agreements between United States and uh, Soviet Union, limiting arms and so on. Now we do not have actually anything, no agreements anymore. So <clears throat> this makes uh, the situation, uh, in my opinion, much more vulnerable. Well, I appreciate your time uh, this morning and I look forward to speaking you, to you in the future. Thank you so much for joining me, the president of Finland, Sauli Ninista. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so very much. The CDC says you should still wear your masks indoors. So why is nearly every governor, including Democrats, dropping COVID restrictions? One of the first Democratic governors to move away from mask mandates joins me live next. Welcome back to State of the Union. We have some breaking news this morning. Queen Elizabeth, who is 95 years old, has tested positive for COVID-19 and is experiencing mild cold-like symptoms. That's according to Buckingham Palace, uh, which also says that she expects to continue light duties at Windsor. Here in the U.S. this week, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced his state is shifting to an endemic approach to COVID-19 as other Democratic governors also remove mask mandates. Someone way ahead of this trend is Colorado's Democratic Governor Jared Polis, who dropped the state's indoor mask mandate more than six months ago. Governor Polis joins me now to discuss. Thank you so much for joining me. You did lift that mask mandate and ended your emergency order eight months ago, Governor. You never put restrictions back, even during the new surges. And still, your state's death rate is one of the lowest in the country. So why did you do that last July when most Democratic governors are just doing it now? Well, you know, Dana, really following the data, uh, what's remarkable is when you look across the data set for United States, those who are triple vaccinated have a 96 percent lower death rate, double vaccinated 85% lower uh, death rate. And by the way, let that be a reminder to viewers, if you're putting off that third dose, please go go get it. It makes a big difference. Um, and, and it's just such a different place than it was to begin with. Um, frankly, uh, at this level, um, of the virus is still something you want to avoid. Uh, we, of course, and I support masks as a matter of personal responsibility. People who uh, choose to wear them indoors around others or adding that layer of protection. But the most important thing right now is to get people triple, triple dosed and, and move on with our lives. Do you think that we have finally reached the endemic phase of COVID-19? Uh, you know, I think what's important is we prepare for an uncertain future. And I think a lot of states are undertaking that. I hope the, uh, the federal government is as well. What does that mean? It means that we don't know what variant will occur. We don't know when the current resistance that we have because of prior infection or vaccine wears off. We need to be ready in six months or a year if we need to to be able to administer a lot of doses of a new vaccine or perhaps the same one quickly. 
We also need to have stockpile of masks and PPE. So we're not back in that same situation we were a year ago. We need to have surge protocols and procedures to ready add hospital beds and add public health capacity. We need to have those really dusted off, ready to go if and when needed so that we're better prepared uh, should the nation or the world be stricken with another variant or resurgence of COVID-19. Back on masking, the CDC still recommends masking indoors. And Dr. Anthony Fauci is warning about lifting restrictions prematurely. I want you to listen to what he said this week. We've been to this this show before where things came down, you pull back a little and it bounces back. When you want to pull back and say we're done, well, you know, the virus may not be done with us. What's your response to that? CDC issues health-based recommendations, uh, not mandates. And I think it's a sound science that indicates, yes, if you want to reduce reduce your risk of contracting COVID-19, wearing a medical-grade mask, if you're in an area where there's a bunch of other people, of course that will reduce your risk, not only of getting COVID-19, but of getting the cold or the flu and a variety of other conditions. Uh, Dana, my, my parents are 77, and my mom has some uh, respiratory pre-existing conditions. And yes, they still wear masks when they're out and about. It's not required in their area. I'm glad they do. Uh, When we go visit with the kids, we do an instant test for the kids before we go over. over. Even though they've been triple vaxxed and that reduces their risk 96%, of course we want to minimize that other 4% chance that something could happen to them. And and we take steps just like many of the American people do uh, to help protect our loved ones. Governor, I want to ask about the politics of this because we're seeing parents pushing back hard on masks in school, mask mandates in school, I should say, especially in the suburbs, which tend to be home to key swing voters. You were in the House before you were governor of Colorado. What is your advice to national Democrats on how to navigate all this? I think talking about masks and vaccines as a matter of personal responsibility, as a data-driven way to reduce your own personal risk, is the right way to be talking about them. As long as we're stuck in this dichotomy of mandate versus no mandate, there's a lot of Americans of all persuasions that react very negatively, rightfully so, to being told or forced to do something. So I think it's about winning over hearts and minds about practical steps that we can take to protect ourselves. And I'm proud that you mentioned Colorado has the ninth lowest death rate per capita. It's a direct result of us having one of the higher vaccination rates per capita. I think we're 11th or 12th and we're uh, 8th or 9th in third doses. So, so I mean, there's a direct connection there, Dana. And I, and I think that just sort of getting the good, trusted data of the American people is what can ultimately save lives. Before I let you go, I want to ask you, you are an openly gay governor. And there are GOP lawmakers in various states across the country pushing anti-LGBTQ legislation from the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida to transgender sports ban in South Dakota. I want you to listen to an exchange between a reporter in South Dakota and Governor Kristi Noem about the LGBTQ residents of her state. There is a statistic circulating around right now that 90% of South Dakota's LGBTQ community is diagnosed with either anxiety or depression. Mm. Um, Why do you think that is? I don't know. That makes me sad and we should figure it out. As the first openly gay man elected governor in America, what's your reaction to that? Look, words matter. Uh, Laws matter when a group of people, LGBT youth, feel targeted 
by the words and laws that some politicians espouse. Of course, it can increase anxiety, depression. Many of them are already dealing with challenging issues in their own family. I think what this is, is it's an example of Republican overreach on an issue that the American people have long moved past. Uh, the American people as a whole uh, you know, are, are completely accepting of, of who people love and, and how they live their lives. And, and these hard policies about saying certain youth can't play sports and certain people aren't allowed in, in certain places or micromanaging what, what restroom people use and mandating what they do uh, are really, uh, frankly, un-American and are an example of Republican overreach, which will ultimately hurt their party if they can't espouse the full diversity of the American people. Governor Jared Polis, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Donna. And she is from Republican royalty, but now her midterm primary race is the center of a battle for the Republican Party. My panel will discuss that and more next. Do you have any indication about whether President Putin has made a decision on whether to invade? Do you feel confident that he that he that hasn't made that decision already? As of this moment, I'm convinced he's made the decision. Welcome back to State of the Union. Our panel is here with me. And Congressman Colin Allred, I want to start with you on what we just played from President Biden this week. As somebody who is on foreign affairs, you were just in the region a couple of weeks ago listening to the president. Our reporting is that that wasn't something that he had planned to do. Oh, really? Meaning, <laughs> meaning reveal the intelligence that the, the, yeah. the plans are in the works for sure from Russia. Do you think that was a good move? Well, I think the president has been very effective at denying the Russians the ability to have any pretext created or to use misinformation uh, to try and get any international legitimacy. So I actually think the transparency from the Biden administration has been a good thing. Uh, I think the Russians would love to have the element of surprise or at least to try and get some kind of international support for what they're doing. I think he's denied that by really talking openly about what we know. And Susan Glasser, you lived there, you lived in Russia, you reported from there, you uh, certainly know the mind of Vladimir Putin better than most of us at this table. Why do you think he's doing this now? Look, Vladimir Putin for two decades has been uh, obsessed with the breakup of the Soviet Union. He called it uh, most memorably, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. That was back in 2005. Ukraine has been a particular sore spot and obsession of his uh, going all the way back to the 2004 Orange Revolution. And so uh, this is many, many years in the making. Someone said to me, and I think it's a, a, an important point, Vladimir Putin has been an incrementalist who's done big things. And again and again and again, We've been surprised at actions that we probably shouldn't have been surprised at. And I agree with the congressman that, you know, the Biden administration has actually done something very different and interesting here by, you know, being saying we're not going to be surprised this time. We're going to put it out there. We're going to, you know, show you what's happening as it's happening. This is a sort of real time, uh, you know, sort of transparent watching the revolution, you know, and the war in this case being live tweeted, unfortunately. And. Meanwhile, you have a Republican Party, which historically, largely, almost entirely has been about pushing back on Russian aggression. And now you have some pretty loud voices in the GOP, Scott Jennings, uh, from Fox News to Capitol Hill, questioning why the U.S. even cares about this, whether there's ever, even an interest there. Well, as a political matter, I do think there is a fatigue in the United States about foreign intervention. It's the impulse, the political impulse that led Joe Biden to pull out of Afghanistan last year and put us in that debacle. 
but I would just point you to January when the Republican Party, led by Ted Cruz in the Senate, tried to put sanctions on Vladimir Putin. And Joe Biden and the Democrats led a filibuster, a Jim Crow filibuster, their words, not mine, against these sanctions. There's 55 votes in the Senate. Now, I'm kind of with Zelensky. Sanctions after they take over doesn't help me. Sanctions in January might have helped, and it was Biden and the Democrats. So for all the voices that are out there that you talk about, it was the Republican Party that tried to put Putin in his place in January, and Biden stopped him. I, I think we have to acknowledge that we've had you know, four years of a president who did everything he could to cozy up to But why didn't, but why didn't Russia try and to invade And who also then? allowed Nord Stream 2 to be constructed during the course of his presidency. And let's be <laughs> honest here. When we're talking about sanctions, the Biden administration has gathered the world, the EU, our NATO allies, I think in a very effective sanctions package that with some allies who are reluctant, like Germany and France, has done a very effective job at doing that. So there, there's, there's no element of this being the Biden administration's fault. This is all on Vladimir Putin. He decided to do this. And now we are responding with our allies in a way that I think is as effective as it possibly could be. And we are in an election year, in a midterm year, that will determine uh, control of, of the U.S. Congress. Kristen Soltis-Anderson, you are a pollster. What are you seeing about whether Americans are fired up about this, whether they see it a distraction? What do they think? In CNN's most recent polling, they asked Americans, what's the biggest problem you think our country needs to address? And foreign policy was the response of 1% of respondents. And that's all of foreign policy. That's not just Russia, Ukraine. That can include China, North Korea, you name it. So foreign policy is relatively low on the list of things Americans are concerned about. But with that said, you could have said the same thing about Afghanistan at the end of last summer. It was not a top issue for most voters. And yet it fundamentally changed the way a lot of people thought about characteristics around Biden and his party, things like leadership, credibility, et cetera. And now in CNN's most recent polling, only 42 percent approve of how Biden has handled our relationship with Russia so far. So there is some downside for him, even though this is not an issue that at the moment is registering very high with voters. You know, Dana, you asked me uh, this really important question of why is Putin doing this? What does he want? Well, one of the reasons that he is doing this is because he believes that America is weak and divided against itself. And I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest uh, that that is a, a correct reading. Uh, we have a situation in this country right now where not only did we have a president who for four years sucked up to Vladimir Putin on the world stage, but we actually have a situation where more Republicans have an unfavorable view of the president of the United States right now than of Vladimir Putin. And so we're divided against each other. There's no consensus uh, about what American leadership in the world means. And that has made this a moment of opportunity for the world's authoritarians, who include Vladimir Putin and also Xi Jinping. Then if I could, I'll just say I was part of a bipartisan delegation to Ukraine. I actually think that Vladimir Putin has effectively united the Congress, at the very least, around uh, resisting him and his aggression. So it's not all, not all hope is lost. We can have some bipartisan agreement around this. But, but, but there is no consensus. We literally in January had a vote in the U.S. Senate about whether to hold Putin accountable, to put sanctions on this pipeline, and the Democrats the stopped it from pipeline. happening. It, they stopped it, is, and they were encouraged to do it by the separate, Biden administration. That's a separate issue. It is not a separate it, issue. It is, very, it is one of his most important issues, and Biden waived the right sanctions, now. Now, and then they stopped the sanctions. I, I think it's actually a shame that you're coming on here and putting us as a Democrat-Republican issue, this should be an American response. I agree. I wish the Democrats were, were willing to stand <laughs> you know, up to Putin listen, before I, he invades. I get it. I get it. That's your, that's your stick. But for me as a member of Congress, in these meetings, we've been speaking with one voice in a bipartisan way. I think you will see a bipartisan vote, by the way, uh, when and if 
Vladimir Putin does take this action right now, I think you will see a bipartisan vote in the Senate, I hope. Uh, and I imagine that if history is any guide, you will see that, and you will see that in the House. The issue is that Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden have all opposed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. They're not the chancellor of Germany. They're not in charge of Germany. Let's turn to domestic politics, which as you were saying, as the pollster at this table, uh, Americans care greatly about. I uh, want to play something that the former presidential nominee for the Democrats and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said this week when she was speaking at a New York Democratic convention. Republicans will claim they're on the side of parents and family values, but they will do nothing for actual parents or families. Nothing on child care, nothing on paid leave, nothing to help working moms and dads get by and get ahead. How's that going to play? Uh, I think for a lot of Republicans, they're perfectly fine with Hillary Clinton coming out and saying Republicans claim they're the party that's for parents' voice. You can you can imagine that being excerpted and, and almost. Well, but she in. didn't say that. She well, I know that that's not what the implication was, books, but but I think a lot of Democrats are still reeling from what happened in Virginia in November with Glenn Youngkin running very effectively on a message about parental voice, which was able to unify conservatives who were very fired up about culture war issues and, and what they think is overreach within institutions like schools, mm-hmm. and more moderate swing voter parents who, those may not be the things that fire them up, but they're concerned about their kids. And these are the kinds of issues that, again, I think cost of living, inflation, that's the number one thing that, that is going to drive this midterm. But these, these sort of cultural issues under the surface, Republicans have been given an opportunity to have the, the sort to claim the sort of middle ground on some of this. Yeah. They can fire up their own base while winning over the Congressman, summer. you're on the ballot. We have like 15 seconds <laughs> left. What do you think about this strategy? Well, listen, I, I don't think Republicans have an agenda. I think they're a party of grievance right now. We're tr- actually putting forward ideas to try and help people. Yes, the pandemic has been frustrating, but our ideas will actually help us get out of this and help families. So that's what we have to run on is our accomplishments. Okay, everybody, thank you so much. We have so much more to talk about. We'll do it next week. Uh, thank you. And... This President's Day weekend, CNN is debuting a new original series focused on the life and presidency of Lyndon Baines Johnson, sometimes called the accidental president. LBJ went on to pass major legislation like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. But his decision to escalate the war in Vietnam may have overshadowed his legacy. Here's a preview of the new series, LBJ, Triumph and Tragedy, premiering at 9 tonight here on CNN. LBJ was intensely aware that he came into the office under the cloak of tragedy. It drove him to try to do things no one else had ever achieved. He said to his aides, what the hell is the presidency for? If you're not going to do something bold, why be here? I think Lyndon Johnson would be seen today as one of our greatest presidents because of all that he did. But he made one bad mistake. Vietnam really pulled him apart. He couldn't make a win out of this, no matter how hard he tried. LBJ said, I wish they knew that I want peace as much as they do. It's important to reflect and look back and see what has been done, because there's no better way to judge the future than by the past. LBJ, Triumph and Tragedy, premieres tonight at 9 on CNN. 
We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.